I'm Dan Rundy. This is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm here with my very good friend, Larry Cooley, who was the founder of MSI, Management Systems International. He's the president emeritus and senior advisor for Management Systems International, but he's sort of a senior statesman in international development, and I'm very also proud to call him my friend. So, Larry, where'd you grow up, and how'd you end up going and doing a development? Well, I grew up in Springfield, Massachusetts. My dad, who'd grown up poor, wound up in the U.S. military, and then by a series of accidents was involved in trying to resettle people coming out of the concentration camps in, in southern Germany at the end of the war. So I kind of grew up with this notion that the world was bigger than the United States, but my own personal experience was very domestic. Then I went to Colgate as an undergraduate, as a philosophy student. And when I was there, I got chosen. It was at one of those life-changing events to spend a year traveling around the world, 68, 69, studying pathways to modernization in nine countries. I was the only one from Colgate. There were 32 of us all together from 32 universities. And when I came back, I knew philosophy professor was not what I wanted to be anymore. So I went to graduate school in economics. And then I went uh, into the Peace Corps. And the Peace Corps sent me to Lesotho. This was right after independence in Lesotho. And the planning ministry where I was, the economic planning ministry, was nine Basutu and me. Uh, you couldn't have picked a more perfect assignment for someone like me. And then I was hooked. And I was going to keep doing this. How did you end up in Washington? Well, you know, I, I came back thinking I was going to work at the World Bank. I got accepted into something called the Young Professionals Program at the World Bank. It still exists. Which still exists and which no commentary on it. I hated. And... So here I was in Washington and not doing the thing I thought I was going to do. So I took another interlude and went back to graduate school at the Woodrow Wilson School in, at Princeton. But by, by that time, I'd really fallen quite in love with Washington. So I came back here after that. And how did you start Management Systems International? Why did you do that? So, I mean, if you think back, this was 81. And in 81, I think there were six really active development consulting firms. There are probably 600 now. But there There's were, probably 600 now. But there were, there were six then, and I knew I was in development, so it was just a question of who I did it for. And I'd spent a couple of years working for another firm that did stuff kind of like what MSI ended up doing, and then decided I really wanted to pick the people I worked with, and so this ended up to be the way to do it. In all honesty, I didn't have any particular aspirations for the firm. It was really just a personal career choice issue for, for me, and it just happened to be the right time, and so it went really nicely for the firm. We wound up being about 800. 800 people. Mm -hmm. And you started with you and two other people probably. Mm -hmm. I remember. And shortly after that, it was me and my wife, Marina. (laughs) Amazing. That's amazing. So when I think about you, when I think about your career in development, there's sort of a series of things you've worked on. And one of them, I think, is the role of private actors in development. And some of it's about philanthropy, and some of it's about the private sector. And you were nice enough and you were a pretty senior guy at the time. And you're still a pretty, you know, you're, you sat down and I said, I said, I don't know what to do. It was, we had to go through some regulatory book. This was Global Development Alliance. Yeah, this was the Global Development Alliance, but there was this regulatory book at AID. There was like the standard operating procedure. I forget what it's called, but it's like this, it's got kind of biblical truth. And you knew what it was. And like, let's sit down. And we went line by line and I, we sat together at a computer, and you were kind enough to sit with me, and that, that's when I first met you. That's how I first met you. It was collaborative, and it was bringing expertise, and it was solving a problem. Well, thanks for saying it that way. The, you know, the, the relationship that I've been lucky enough to have with aid has been really fun for me because if you turn back the clock a little bit, 
partner really meant partner. I mean, now that word gets used a little bit loosely, but but in the early days, it really meant partner. And so there probably wasn't an admission director for, of one era that I didn't train. I ran the new entry program for the IDIs for a while. IDIs the, is the, the entry program, the for, entry AID. program for AID foreign service officers. And then we did a lot of basic systems. The firm I'd been with before had developed the logical framework for AID. So that the was famous a natural, log frame. That was a fit, that was a kind of a natural thing to to work on. But then we went from that into some of the internal systems of aid, evaluation systems, and things of that sort. And then I've always just personally been really interested in the capacity for collective action. And that usually means how do you get diverse stakeholders to work together? So this public-private, the role of philanthropy, that's exactly in my sweet spot. And for ironically, for the same reason, it's why I like the things like the post-conflict reconstruction issue, because so many different voices need to find their way into concerted action if anything good's going to happen. It seems to me that any of the big global challenges, that, there's not one single actor that can solve them. I think that's right. And it's not only right, but it's, it's ultimately challenging because everything that the world knows about management, we know how to do better vertically than horizontally. Everything. Everything. And so every time you're trying to galvanize or really make happen collective action, and there's not somebody in charge, it's going to have some version of this problem. I, I directed for 11 years a program called Implementing Policy Change. And that program eventually in 40 countries helped governments try to manage some large policy change effort. And if you looked at it, there wasn't one. I mean, the president of the country couldn't control it. All of these things required public-private partnership. They required federal, state, local in many cases. They involved actors who you had control over and actors you didn't have control over. And it doesn't mean everyone's all of a sudden one big happy family. But if you can't find some course of action that unites enough of those interests, you're simply not moving forward. And most of the structures for making that happen are ill-suited to it because they're much better suited for command and control kinds of things. And I guess the only good news for me is that that made a career for me. It's been career enhancing. It's been career enhancing, even if it's been for me. societally less enhancing. Mm -hmm. how, but Larry, how about you think you've been thinking about the the future of philanthropy because that plays into this conversation. How have you intersected in the world of philanthropy? Well, I'll take a step back first. Yeah. So I did that eleven year program on implementing policy change, and then through a kind of again happy accidents, I got pulled into something called scaling up. We now call it scaling yeah. up. But it was really taking the same basic concept that had driven the policy change work, which is large system change, but a different entry point. So instead of starting with government policy and trying to drive it down, it was trying to find something good and drive it up. But the aspiration was the same. That whatever it was would become large scale, usually national or global in, in nature. And so when you start trying to look at where those things originate, those ideas, sometimes government spawns them itself, but very often they start outside government. And very often they're sponsored by a foundation or an NGO or somebody who's funded to try to make something interesting happen. Often they get names like pilot project or demonstration or R&D or something like that. And I just got totally captivated by the idea of how you harvest those things and try and drive them to change. When that started, I'm going back now for me to about 2003. When, when that started, it was very hunt and peck. There were a few really good examples that people could cite, a lot of them in the health sector. 
Like uh, the Green Revolution. Uh, Green Revolution is one. I got to spend a few days with Norm Barlog's partner on, on that activity, a guy named Dr. Swaminathan in India, who was just an amazing, amazing person. And the more you got the backstory, there's a really complicated but incredibly interesting way that people would both ascertain what was scalable and drive it to scale. And I came to believe that just as the development community had gotten better and better at project management, we could get better and better at that kind of management. But it meant you had to have a very sharp eye and weed out a lot of stuff early, and you needed to have some systematizing of how you would approach something once you decided you were serious and that there was a case for scaling. So I'm getting in a long yeah, way okay. around to your question. But this the, is the long-form podcast. It's no problem. <laughs> but think about that vis-a-vis philanthropy. Philanthropy is often the group that can take a flyer on something interesting, but it's n- in no position to scale it in almost any case whatsoever, even, even the Gateses of this world. Yeah, they'll say – well, we look at them and say, oh, they're enormous – and they may be doing three to five billion dollars a year, but for the big cha- global challenges, you can't do it all. I was—I've been involved for the last few years with the MacArthur Foundation on a competition called One Hundred and Change, mm. where they give a hundred million dollar grant to somebody to help solve or to solve a problem that's been that they think is solvable. And we, I was meeting with the eight semifinalists the last time around. We're meeting in the fancy hotel in Boston. And everyone's kind of a little bit awestruck by the prospect of this $100 million grant. And I started by saying, you know, the the remake on this hotel just cost $110 million. So just to take these big problems and put them into context, it's usually the case that big problems need big solutions. So philanthropy, is these are smart people, and they've come to the same conclusion. So what you're starting to see is things like that MacArthur initiative, but then you see things like the Audacious Project. And you see things like co-impact. These are efforts to take mostly new wealth philanthropy, bring them together into collective action on something where the, the typical deal size will be 50 to $100 million, where, and they'll spot something that they think really has the potential for major change and where they can agree to work in concert in moving that ahead. I've now worked on several of these. Mm. And the, the governance of it's really interesting, but the role of philanthropy for me is very interesting because... On the one hand, you would say, bless their hearts. I mean, here are people who've made a ton of money, and you can think what you want about the inequality in that, but this is where that money is, and that they're willing to give it back is a wonderful thing. But there's no accountability in that system, any more than there would be in what you or I do with our money. And so it has tremendous power for good, and it's got a real capacity under the wrong circumstances to either be wasted or to actually push something, something in a wrong direction. When philanthropy was really charity, then the worst thing you could do was waste it. But when philanthropy is moving the needle, the worst thing you can do is something that's to send something in the wrong direction. And so to me, this future of philanthropy and how it fits into collective action on the one hand and constructive change on the other, I think is a real uncharted but very important new arena. So... When I also think of MSI and I think of you, Larry, I think about measurement and evaluation. I think it's related to this conversation about philanthropy and are we making change? How's change happening? This is my simplistic understanding of it, but the rule of thumb, if I understand it, is you're supposed to spend 5% on a project on M&E. That's sort of the Cadillac. That's the Cadillac spend on M&E. There are very few institutions, I think, that spend 5% of a project spend on m and believe. I cannot believe the U.S. government does. And maybe some subset of philanthropy does it, but 
maybe, maybe not. And then the other thing is, again, this is sort of Dan's simplistic worldview. I worry that much of the evaluation sit on people's shelves and don't get read, or that the way change happens is something similar to the medieval uh, church architecture, where like it kind of like, oh, I learned, so- I saw them do that over there, and I'll just kind of bring it over here, and it was sort of very word of mouth as opposed to some kind of systemic learning, if I can put it that way. So, am I wrong? Is that what am I? What am I missing when I think about measurement and evaluation and development and philanthropy? Is are those are those impressions off? Are they kind of correct or? So that's a whole that's smorgasbord. A I'm, that's I'm a go- smorgasbord. I'm going for the whole thing. Go for the whole thing. Wait. So, so uh, here's the first thing I want to say. And I curate a community of practice on scaling. Okay. There are about now uh, several hundred of us, but about 200 organizations in this, including pretty much all the donor organizations. And uh, within that, we have one working group on monitoring and evaluation. And the working group on monitoring and evaluation has concluded that in what, anything that's called a pilot project, the rule of thumb for spending on monitoring, evaluation, learning, and communication should be 20%. Oh, And I'll tell you why. This is – I'm just going to work back yeah. to the other half of your question yeah, in a yeah. second. But the reason why is the purpose of a pilot project ought to be somehow informing what the whole does. That's what it's pilot for. It's there to learn. That is its product. I mean, of course, you're hoping to help people and solve problems along the way, but that's in some way that's instrumental toward trying to learn something and, and take something from it that would help drive the larger system. Well, how's that going to happen? Almost any reasonable theory of change says, A, you have to learn it as well as you can, and B, you have to communicate it as well as you can. There's nothing more important going on in the project than that. There's nothing more important. And a study that I and some others did, and Brookings did a related study, showed that about 5% of pilot projects ever go to scale. That's mm-hmm. too low. Now, if you're thinking like a venture capitalist, you'd say 10%. That's, about, that's a rule of thumb for them. I think that ought to be our minimum. I think that's our threshold. So we're at least half below our threshold. Why? I think because we keep inventing the new pilot, but we don't put a comparable amount of resource into taking that stuff and doing what we would need to both to determine its scalability, and to actually help it scale. So if you do that, it drives you back into the monitoring, evaluation, communication function in a pretty serious way. So for me, if you really, if you really mean pilot project, you don't mean small project. If you really mean pilot project, proof of concept is way too low a bar. It needs to be proof of concept and everything you need to do to equip that concept for moving on to a larger scale application, which in prominent measure means generating the information that would answer skeptics' questions, testing it under a variety of different circumstances, communicating things in ways different audiences can understand, bringing people together to learn about That's what I think a real pilot project is. So for me, there's no way to do that unless you make an an investment in it. That's that's how we get to the 20% number. Now go back to the other half, which I also think is true in your question, which is that the less than 5% that most people do spend probably is not, they're not getting a good return on investment. And that's, so how, why am I saying you should spend 20% on something where you're getting a bad return on 5%? And I think it's because the evaluation stuff has slipped into a compliance mode. It's become a compliance function. Yeah, and that I'm not against compliance, but that's too much to spend on compliance if that's all it is. If it's somehow part of the process of how you make change happen in the system, it's, it's a bargain at twice the price. 
But if it's just something to satisfy someone that you've been responsible steward of the money and to document what did or didn't happen, I say spend it on helping somebody instead. So uh, can, can I, I do just one more thing yeah, on yeah. this? Are so, you opti- yeah, I mean, are you optimistic about aid culture changing on this specific so issue? So on this specific issue, I'm very optimistic. And, and that's despite being less optimistic on some other features yeah. of, the, of the aid culture. But right now, on this, I'm very optimistic. I'll give you a couple of reasons why. So in September, I helped the African Development Bank and Purdue run a conference on scaling in agriculture. Mm. It was one of those few times in my career I really felt like I was on an inflection point, that you could just kind of see people changing perspectives on this. Across the, these were the, the corporates, These were the university researchers, and these were the the donor agencies, all in the same room, all in the same conversation, all at the same time. Then that went right on to the World Food Prize in in Des Moines. Now it's coming back here to Washington in a couple of weeks, April 10th, when we're we're launching the source book that we wrote out of the – Julie Howard and I wrote the the source book about scaling in agriculture based – in part on that, that we're going to launch on the National Press Club. The National Press Club, right. I saw it. So that's one piece. Then there's another piece, move to the education sector. There's an activity I've been involved in, but it's a lot of other people too, called Millions Learning out of Brookings. Mm. Brookings has taken on what's scaled successfully in education and why, and how can you begin to extrapolate that or apply it in other, other settings. And the device they've, they've chosen is something called real-time scaling labs. The real-time scaling labs embed with something which is actually trying to go to scale. I was, in the last couple of weeks, I was with one of these in Tanzania and another one in the Ivory Coast that works with the chocolate cocoa-supported activities there. In each case, what has to happen is that someone has to decide that something has enough promise to try and to become a permanent feature of either government systems or private markets and then try to take whatever's going on at the project level and flip it into something that could help propel that process. When you do that, and I'm not saying that that, that happens all the time, but it's happening more and more and more, you begin to see the limitation of projects if they aren't doing that. Another way of thinking about that is that uh, the way when we present this, we say, look, you have to think about problems as having denominators, and the denominator is the size of the problem. So instead of congratulating ourselves on how well we did at the numerator, let's always hold that up against the denominator. So if it's a, if your 5,000 is 1%, that's not so hot. If your 5,000 5, is 90%, that's a great job. And if, as soon as you move into that mindset, I think, you can't escape anymore, either scaling up or policy change or or market signals, or something, because there are only two platforms that can deliver at scale. Only two. And that's governments and markets. That's it. I'm I'm working on a piece now on the very, very, very few exceptions to that. Think about things like Alcoholics Anonymous. That's an exception to that. But I can count them on my fingers, the ones that are exceptions. That's sort of social movements. Social movements, and they're usually faith-based, because religious groups also have an infrastructure to deliver, and they have a mandate and a mission to deliver on a large scale. But there's almost nothing else. Beyond that, it's essentially governments and markets. So if I wanted to say this in the bluntest way, I would say if your project or your intervention, your donor-supported activity, doesn't have a real strategy for making a permanent change in what governments do or what markets do, it doesn't have a scaling strategy. 
Those wow. Are the, those are the only scaling strategies. That's amazing. So that, I think slowly that concept is sinking into people's notion about how development happens. And it's aided by something I know you've done a lot of work on, which is aided by the fact that the donor dollar is such a smaller proportion of things. And one of the things that we cite in the source book is a different version of a metric I've heard you use. I got this one from Steve Radlett when he said that for every dollar that's going in in foreign assistance, those, those very same countries through domestic resource mobilization are coming up with 35. It's amazing. So think of us as the 3% minority shareholder. We're the 3% minority shareholder. That's a great way to think of us. That's not how we think about ourselves. No, it's not. And, and we it's think not, about us as the 300% majority shareholder. Yeah, it's not only the way, not the way we think of ourselves. For the most part, it's not yet the way they think of us, but it's the way they're increasingly thinking of us, and it's the way they should. It's yeah. a discretionary 3%, which gives it more power, but my, that's... My, my line is, this isn't your grandparents' developing world. It's richer, freer, more capable, with more agency, and my codicil is... And if we don't meet the hopes and aspirations of these countries, they're going to take their business to China. I totally agree with that. Right? I totally agree with that. The, or, they'll do oh, it, or they'll do it without all of us. Yeah. You know, they, I mean, the, if There's he, been a quintupling of taxes raised in Africa. Now, granted from a low bar from the year 2000, at least a quintupling. Now, that's not all evenly distributed among all 54 sub-Saharan African countries, but it says to me something's going on. It's not yeah. just oil, gas, and mining. It's the middle class. There's more formality. There's a broader base. There's a lot of change that's happening. I spoke to a friend of mine, I, I won't tell you which country, who's the minister of finance of an African country now. And I said, well, how do you think of foreign aid these days? This happens to be an African country that was once very donor-dependent yep. and is now not, not so much. It still accepts foreign aid, but it's not yeah. donor-dependent in anything like the same way. He said, well, I kind of think of it like a model railroad. Oh, no. I th- I, I, so we sort of play with things in the basement. And if they really seem like they work really well, we bring them up and we try them for real. And I said, ouch. And, and well, sort of ouch, but not quite. I said, well, does that mean it's sort of incidental to you? He said, no, because even though I have budgets where this might be a portion of one percent of my budget, it's discretionary in a way I don't easily have, because. Even though the numbers are very large in my regular budget, they are programmed for either salaries or mandated programs or something. And you would be surprised how little wiggle room there is in a budget of of that size. So when I have something for which I'm not – it sounds funny, but I'm not accountable to our taxpayers, there's a chance to try things that I think I probably wouldn't be able to try under other circumstances. So for me, it is a kind of an R&D function, but it's not a substitute for delivering goods and services to the population. I need to then use it. And particularly if it's, if it's something that's got kind of a vertical quality to it, it's, it's got one element of something, I have to figure out what I can take out of that project and insert into the larger system. It's, the larger application is not going to be just the project big. It's going to be things that the project did that we're now able to integrate into a larger scale delivery modality. And he said, I don't want to pretend that's not important to me. That's very important to me. But the days when that was essentially my strategy for delivering outcomes to the population are long gone. Wow. Good Lord. Tell me about fragile states. So you, you know, when I I have a simplistic model that let's say there's 80 developing countries, let's say 50 of them are going to make it. 50 of them are going to become South Korea. They're following the path of South Korea or Taiwan. And they're basically going to make it, more or less. Then we're kind of stuck with 
30 fragile and conflict-affected states, the so-called bottom billion. There's a whole bunch of challenges that come with those countries. For at least the last 20 years, you've been working in a number of fragile and conflict-affected states trying to work on development issues. And I think it's one of the great conundrums of our time, and it's going to be with us for decades. Well, I think that's right. And I think people who define themselves as development people, which, by the way, I think will be a a smaller number of us over time. I think a number of people, I hope a growing number of people, will work on problems in poor countries. But I don't think they'll self-define as development people. They'll be agriculturalists or they'll be educators or they'll be health people or they'll be water specialists. But those of us who really think of ourselves as development people, which means, for me, helping countries really grapple with big institutional choices about things, I think our work will end up being increasingly and maybe primarily in these fragile states. That's who needs us. That's who needs us. And it's not Brazil that needs us. It's not Brazil. Brazil's got Brazilians. For me, in this situation, let me give you one perspective on this. So inside that work on scaling up, there's another working group that within this community of practice that works on scaling up in fragile states. Really? And so a lot of that, the early work on that was around a paper that Jonathan Papalidis from World Vision and I wrote, which is around what's distinctive about scaling up in fragile states. And we came to believe that there are at least four things that are really different about these, and they really make a, make a difference in terms of moving forward. The first one is that if you believe what I said before, that the only platforms that can deliver services at Our scale, go- markets governments and, government. and markets, I'm buying they're, that. They're both compromised. Yep. They're both compromised. So in that situation, you need to figure out different sorts of workarounds and accommodations to something that should be your primary conveyor belt. So that's the first thing. That you can't, in a fragile and conflict, if I say, depend on the market or nor depend on government. Not in the normal way. Right. The second thing is that people see everything in those situations through the lens of their underlying grievances. Yes. And so things that you might think of as a technocratic solution will be seen that way plus the whatever the... The, the tribal the, grievance or the personal even grievance. Even if there was no intention, even if the people implementing had no notion that it would be perceived in that way. So in this do-no-harm philosophy, it takes a lot of extra thought and a lot of contextual knowledge to understand how to deliver anything in a way that really helps to compound the benefit by also working on the underlying drivers of conflict and not compound the, the problem. I think, Larry, we're not good at fragile and conflict states. Well, is that is that well, is that too, so, is that too gen- much of a generalization? Well, I, no, I think it's not. First of all, these are wicked problems. They're wicked problems. The, so, but these are really hard. They're they're hard for anybody. But I think it's harder because the stuff I'm saying means that you need to really understand the context. I mean, really understand. And if to the extent, you know, that stuff that some people call isomorphic mimetry, you know, where you can kind of copy the thing you were talking about before. We can kind of take the thing that worked here and move it there. If that functions anywhere, it functions around problems and situations that are less context-dependent. Right. But the things that are very context-dependent, which at the top of the list is conflict, that's exactly what you can't do. That way. So, and we do, if you look at how foreign aid tends to work, those are the shortest assignments. They're one year tours. You just can't learn enough. So, I was in Afghanistan two weeks ago. I felt like I needed to go because I've been concerned about doing something foolish we shouldn't do too soon. 
There's been an enormous amount of dramatic progress in Afghanistan in spite of all the challenges, but there's an enormous amount of grievance. They've had 40 years of conflict, more or less, and but I had to go, and I went to the embassy. I got every meeting I wanted. I met with the mission director. I met with the ambassador. I had six office director meetings. I made a wish list. I got them all. But I had to spend like a day. 95% of the people, I'm making a little bit of a generalization, never leave the embassy. So there are people there who never leave from when they take their black their chopper from the airport to when they leave. It's not being a little unfair. And some of it has to do with, I think, some of the things like when that ambassador got killed in Libya. I think people said we never want that ever to happen again. And so, you know, we don't hear often about foreign service officers or other people getting killed anymore. And that's that's a great thing. But I worry that we're not able to reach people. The other thing I worry about, Larry, is I think we're going to have to create something like a new kind of a specialized cone where you get, I don't know, you get some kind of deal like you, you, you learn some real obscure language, something like, you know, Urdu. Frankly, I'll be a little provocative. I feel like we may want to go to ex-military people and give them a year of development charm school and say, we'll give you a, you know, we'll give you a second career and you need to do a seven, five or seven year tour. I know that idea is getting... And I, I, you're not I, a fan. I, I don't share it, not because I don't think that there's an upside to that. I think there is both because of willingness to stay and ability to operate in yeah. some of these environments. But anything that feels like the militarization of foreign aid I know. It gives me gives major... you antibodies. Okay. Okay, but okay, so let's put aside my ex military temptation. But what I feel like it currently the way it works is I'm feeling like the current system which was designed for let's call them benign environments. And it's sort of a very close first cousin to the original Foreign Service, which was I'm thinking about the AID context where we're going to need some kind of specialized group of several hundred people who are willing to serve three to five or seven-year tours with specialized languages, and that they ought to get rewarded for that. How about that? I believe that. Let me take the military part out of it. And uh, and let me also, if I can, disaggregate this fragile state thing a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Because – And does there – let me just stop you there for a second. Does there exist a pool of people? But I just get the sense that the foreign service system – isn't producing several hundred people like that right now. No, it wasn't set up. It for, wasn't set up that no, way. it's not. And so I wonder if, could we find a pool of several thousand people like that who are good as well as willing? Well, you know, if you were going to say, what would those people look like? look like? I would take you back to my first days when I started in Iraq. Right. So Iraq, you had all of these civil affairs people. Yes. Who were a little bit that person. That wasn't a pretty picture. Those were lovely human beings. Lovely human beings. But that was not a pretty picture in terms of trying to attack the problems. I think if you were going to do that— and How you many would, spoke Arabic? You, you would re- not many. Not many. You would really have to recruit for it and build for it from the ground up. You'd I, have think. To, I they, think you're right. Contrast that with a couple of other situations. I want to contrast it with Iraq and with South Sudan. Okay. Okay. So what I'm about to say is going to be sort of unpopular, I think, currently unpopular view. Whatever one might think about— the original decision to invade in Iraq. Yeah, yeah, right. I think some of the work that was done, not the first round, but the second round of work in Iraq. Version 2.0. Version 2.0 was really terrific. And it was really too bad that we kind of, once again, I think we're a little hasty in the way we started to to walk away from that. I'm I'm biased. I mean, we had, we, MSI, had a a 10-year effort to try and rebuild the Iraqi public service. This is the way I want to contrast it. The Iraqi public service used to be the gold standard in the Middle East. The very best Egyptian bureaucrats, the very best Jordanian bureaucrats, they studied in Iraq. Yes. If people talked about 
the shining city on the hill for, for the public administration. East. It was Baghdad. This is before the Saddam years. Yeah, this is in the 50s and 60s. This is in the 50s and 60s. It was really extraordinary. So it was very like what my dad told me about in trying to do rebuilding in Germany after the Second World War. This was people who had been going in a very positive direction, had suddenly had it fall apart, and now found themselves basically trying to find a way back to the position they thought they deserved in terms of standing in the world and and status and performance. For me, that was incredibly satisfying. The MSI program, I'm not trying to tout it, but I'm proud of it, is that we were involved in retraining 106,000 Iraqi bureaucrats. You could see the changes in performance in those institutions. So that, to me, is a very different situation than you might find in some of the countries which have never really had a foundation of strong institutions. All the way to the other end, to South Sudan. South Sudan is a place I've been spending a lot of time in the last couple of years. I heard Juba's lovely in April. Oh, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, there's a really interesting experiment going on there that I hope people pay attention to that's called Partnerships for Resilience and Recovery, which is all of the donors working with communities when they're able and willing to come together around really trying to seriously tackle the, the drivers of fragility, not just conflict but poverty. And I saw one piece of this. So I was, last time out, I was facilitating what they called the learning event. 250 people for three days. Here's, here's a little vignette from yeah. that. So in the middle of that, one of the people present is the bishop from Yambio. Right. A serious authority figure. A serious authority figure. He was there. The governor from Yambio was there, a couple of ministers, and the head of the largest private sector enterprise, which is a teak plantation. Okay. We're all there. The governor... The town fathers and mothers. The town fathers and mothers. And you could so feel that this was not a donor initiative that was begrudgingly accepted, but the other way way around. And that's in a situation which is about as fragile as you you can imagine. When you look up fragile, it's right there. It's going to show up. Right. Right. So I think that if we change our relationship to the people with whom we're intervening, even people who don't have intimate knowledge of the context, if they're willing to listen in a different way and engage in a different way and not have to feel like they have know all the answers in advance, can do important work. You can make big mistakes too. But I'm not of the opinion that you have to somehow be, even though I think context is dominant there, I think what really has to happen is that we need to reform the way we intervene in places like that, recognizing we sometimes know as little as we do about the context. So I think there's no choice. If we care about the world, you can't run away from those places. I'm not arguing with you at all about how hard they are. I don't feel despairing about it. I just feel like we've got to not try to take the model we used in other places. In India in the 60s. And transplant it. What are you optimistic about when you think about global development? I'm very optimistic about the fact that in almost every country I work now, there are really strong local talent pools. And that's different than 50 years ago. When you started the business, that's different 40 years ago. Absolutely. And in many of those countries, for all the reasons we were saying before, there's also a domestic resource base. So to me, it doesn't feel like this sort of helper-helpy relationship in the same way, neither at the technical level nor at the financial level. To me, that's that's great progress. Another thing that I feel really good about is I feel like people are kind of push for, for what you might say the wrong reasons. People are really talking about values again, and they're really willing to sort of 
say, what are we, what what are we it, about? Who, what are we about? You know, what does it really mean to play a role in the planet? What does it mean to be a steward of, of resources? What does it mean to try and care about your country? And that's true whether you're here or whether you're, or whether you're there. To me, the fact that that feels like it's a conversation going on simultaneously in developed and developing countries is a very liberating proposition. And it's a way better paradigm than the than poor me and let me help. That's one set of things. Second set of things, I think that even though it scares me in, in some ways, the technology really does change things. I mean, I look seeing it now through the point of view of scaling. And there are things that are possible. One of the things I say in the scaling stuff is the normal time lag between a good idea coming to market and getting to scale is about 15 years. But now I can give you several examples where it was much shorter than that because of technology that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. So I think that's another really promising thing. And, and I guess the third thing is in countries like ours now here, I think there's a kind of a rebirth of some kind of idealism in, in young people who just are really looking for a way and not so young people. And not so young people. Pe- people who just... People like us. People like us, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who really think that... I mean, I'll speak for myself. I kind of felt until fairly recently that I'd done my bit for better or for worse. The thing that my dad used to say that you should judge a generation by what it handed on in comparison to what was handed to it. No. And for a long time, I felt pretty good about that. And at the moment, I feel very badly about that. And so I think I'm not alone in feeling that way. And, and I hope what that means, that, that doesn't sound like a promising thing, but the way I'm turning it promising is I think people who were ready to exit the stage now feel sort of obliged to come back in and just stay do their for best the last, to give Stay it, for the last quarter. Stay for the last quarter. Okay, but let's talk about one last thing. How about the aid business in Washington? I'm not happy about this, but I think it's going to change pretty dramatically. I mean, I think it is very much an artifact of the system we were describing before. Yeah. And if the world's changing, we're going to have to change. We're going to have to change. It's going to get disrupted. Along with it. Yeah. And when I say I'm not happy about it, I'm only not happy about it because I think there are many, many wonderful organizations and really talented professionals that are the product of what we were. Of that system that was set up. Of that system. And so those institutions and those people are going to have to change and catch up. And I think it's going to be the case that, again, for the reasons we said earlier, that a lot of people won't define themselves as development organizations or even development professionals at some point in the future. They'll end up being professional in something with a real interest and a commitment to trying to do something in developing countries or in places where they're needed. But I just don't think the moniker of development is going to stick in quite the same way. Thanks a lot. This is wonderful. We should do this more often. Deal. All right. Thanks, Larry.